the church is always looking for money. It's one of these uh, oft-repeated phrases that, that grates with me, actually. One of these things that people throw out with about as much thought as you would get from your average Pavlovian dog. Um, it doesn't just happen in churches. You know, it happens in other contexts as well. You know, when a, it's coming up to a, a game for Rangers against Celtic, some lazy journalist or some lazy pundit will say, well, you know, in these games the form book goes out the window. That's rubbish. Utter rubbish. Uh, do the counting if you don't believe me. The forum team usually wins. But oh no, it's, don't, don't confuse us with accuracy. Don't confuse us with having to get information. It's easier just to trot out these kind of sayings time and again, whether or not they bear any resemblance to reality. <clears throat> if anybody does it to you, challenge them. How do you know that? What's your information? As for the church always looking for money, well, I've, uh, I've been here more than 17 years now, and in those 17 years we have had one stewardship campaign. One. Yes, there have been particular other special efforts, for example, to refurbish the sanctuary here for the heating and so on. And then, of course, there's other appeals or requests about giving, such as our retiral offerings after quarterly communions or our congregational Christmas card or Christian Aid Week and so on. But all of these are for money for us to give away. They're not anything that we keep. And many an organization and many a cause have been supported there and via coffee mornings and so on. When presented with a particular need or request, the congregation here have always been very generous. But in this series, looking at the promises that are made when someone professes faith and joins a congregation, after the bit that says that we are living the Lord's way by living a life of active discipleship, which is what we looked at last week, the next phrase, phrase says, by regular and committed financial giving. So we do make a point of highlighting financial giving, not by way of appeal upon appeal or special event upon special event, but by saying that there should be a regular, steady, committed financial commitment. Now, why do we do that? Well, some of you will be thinking, well, because the church needs to pay the bills, doesn't it? But that's not the first reason, actually, and that's not the main reason. I've said earlier in this series and often before this, that all we can ask or expect of one another in church is what's taught in the New Testament. We cannot insist that a Christian must be one thing or another that is not given by Jesus and his apostles. There are no rules about how to dress for coming to church. We cannot say from Scripture whether you should be for or against Scottish independence, or whether you should prefer the monarchy or republicanism. It doesn't say anything about your taste in music, about the length of time that you need to spend in prayer, 
or about whether you should sit or stand or to sing and to pray, and so on. These things are not explicitly given instructions. Financial giving? Well, actually, it is there. And that's why it's in the vows, not because we need to raise funds, but because of some very clear teaching in the New Testament. Jesus himself said a good deal about money and how we use our money. In fact, it was one of his more recurring subjects. But it's to that passage I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that I want to turn today. Now, as I said, chapters 8 and 9 are about financial giving, and Paul has gone through different um, arrangements and examples of giving. And then in ver verses 6 to 15 of chapter 9, he moves from particular details to give some general or underlying principles. And typically of Paul, he puts the issue he is dealing with in the big picture of what God is doing in and for the world. It's the kind of thing Paul does time and again. In Philippians, there's a couple of the congregation having a, a bit of a, a tiff that's been going on and on and on. So what does Paul do? He talks about how Jesus didn't hang on to his glory but emptied himself and took the form of a servant and learned obedience and, and then says, have that mind that Jesus had. Don't stand your own ground all the time but be willing to give up. That's what Jesus did. And here again, he's putting the context of giving in this bigger picture. Particular matters should be put in the context of all the gospel so that we might get a better perspective on them. I read um, numerous pages yesterday. Well, I think it was 47. It's not huge. But I read 47 pages yesterday. Well, I didn't read them all. Okay. I read the, one, the bits I wanted to read. But I read numerous pages yesterday for next week's presbytery meeting. And to be fair, what I read was an attempt, a, a good attempt, to look at the planning that we've been told is coming, to look at the planning not just in terms of who can keep their minister and who can keep their building, but to try and see how best we shape up for the bigger purpose of serving God in our world today. And that's the right way around. It's not about someone protecting their bit, but it's about saying, how do we do God's work? How best do we fit in with the purposes and plans of God? And 2 Corinthians 9, 6-15 is only a brief sketch, but it's a sketch nevertheless about what it means to be the people of God. It is an attempt to get the Corinthians and then later New Testament readers, it's an attempt to get us to see everything, God, the world, the church, ourselves, to see it in a different light, part of God's mission in the world. And so the emphasis is not in the first instance, do better, dig deeper into your pockets, give more. Rather the emphasis in the first instance is to consider who God is, what his purposes are, and how we play our part within that. For if we have a picture of who God is and what he's about, then the giving will take care of itself. So our giving, Paul says, verse 6, should be 
sacrificial, whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. He takes us back, I suppose, in reference to the previous chapter and the verse with which I began the service. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, not his own, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. There's a sacrificial element. He's done that huge amount for others. And the very nature of the Christian gospel is around sacrifice, is about giving, is about graciousness and generosity. And so if that gospel is real, if the kingdom of God is real, if the mission of God in the world matters, if Jesus really is good news, then it's not a case of how little can I get away with. Nor is it a case of what can I offer after I've seen to everything else I want to spend on. It is how do I respond to that kind of sacrifice that Jesus has made for me. And Paul says in verse 6 that it's not so much a giving away, it's, it's more like an investment. How do I make the best investment for the future? Good insurance policies? Wise use of savings? Getting the family sorted out in my will? Well, these matter and have their place, but they're not everything. Or even the main thing... Jesus said in Matthew 6, and part of what we know as the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, do not store up for yourself treasure on earth, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. How do we do that? How do you lay up treasures in heaven? By using what we have here for God's purposes, God's kingdom. And if God's eternal kingdom is more than the here and now, if it's more important than this life, if the kingdom of God realities are more significant, then that should be reflected in the priorities that we have now, in the way that we use what we have here. In the kingdom of God, it is giving, not getting. It is sacrifice that counts. In the often misused story of the widow's gifts at the temple in Luke chapter 21, what Jesus commends is not she gave a little and it counted for more because, well, she didn't have very much. No, what Jesus draws attention to is that she gave all that she had. Luke 21. Listen to it. Jesus looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. See the difference? It's not that her wee bit extra was better than somebody else's wee bit extra because she didn't have very much. She put in all that she had, said Jesus. Sacrificial giving. It's the currency of the kingdom of God. 
But as well as our giving being sacrificial, verse 6, Paul also says it should be thoughtful, verse 7. Now, he'd already told the church in Corinth this, because in the first letter to the church in Corinth, at chapter 16, Paul said, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. See what he's saying here? You just give regularly. And then when I turn up, because the collection that we're going to take to other poorer churches, we don't have to run lots of jumbo sales. We don't have to suddenly run around and say, get funds, Paul's coming tomorrow. Quick, 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 get them. Because it'll be there through the regular, careful, thoughtful, systematic giving. We should then make a conscious, thought-out determination of how much we're able to give. Verse 7 of chapter 9, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. It's not a case of turning up and saying, what's in my pocket? Or what's left over? We should make a conscious, thought-out determination. How much can we give? Now, at this point, there are, there are folks who will take a line about um, the importance of tithing. And in the Old Testament, the tithe was, was 10%. And there are folks who will say that that should be our giving. Um, <clears throat> I, I've never been convinced by that, that line of argument, actually. Um, for one thing, the Old Testament tithe... Um, was given not just to the church, as it were, but to the nation of Israel. And a lot of it was used for what we cover these days through taxation. But also, there is, there is never any hint in the New Testament that we give 10% or even we give 10% and stop there. And I think it's not insignificant that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, the verse that I read a few moments ago on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. He doesn't say tithe. And it's significant too, in verse 7 of chapter 9 that we read, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. That is, he doesn't say each of you should be tithing because that's what we're doing now. Plus, I've heard it said that Tithing is good because you can give your 10% and then do what you like with the other 90%. That's ridiculous. Everything we have is from and for God, and we have to work out all of our responsibilities. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't stop when I've done my 10%. It doesn't stop when I've, I've been to church on a Sunday morning and I don't have to do anything. It doesn't, there are no rules like that. And it's following Jesus in the best way the most wholehearted way that we can follow Jesus. And if we are intent on sacrificial giving for the advancing of Christ's work, and if we work it out on the basis of doing all we can and should, then the finances, I would have to say, of congregations in the Western world would be sorted. Yes, there are poorer areas in the West where maybe people can't give as much. Yes, there are other opportunities in life asking for our custom and our money. And the consumer culture is bombarding us all the time. 
You see, that's another of my points when those say it's the church is always asking for money. No, it isn't. It's the fashion industry that's always asking for your money. It's the car manufacturer that's always asking for your money. It's the deodorant makers that's always asking for your money. All the time we're being, being bombarded. The travel agents are asking for your money. The satellite TV companies are asking for your money. We're hit by that stuff all the time. And the bottom line is that the church in the West really is wealthy. We are, whether we admit it or not, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, compared with the rest of the world, we're loaded. Compared with our grandparents, we're loaded. And it's the lack of these two principles about sacrificial and thoughtful giving that has hamstrung the church so much. Well, as well as saying that our giving should be thoughtful and uh, sacrificial, Paul then goes around to this bigger issue of giving praise and thanks to God for the rest of the chapter. That is, there's more to it, he says, than just the impact that this kind of giving has on the giver. Both the giving, which is to be cheerful, verse 7, and the impact of the gift, verse 11, are a cause for God getting thanked. We are not giving so that we can support an organization, the church, nor are we giving to keep some bully God off of our back. We are to give out of gratitude to God who has given us the priceless gift of His Son as Savior. A gift that is free for us but costly for Him. So then if we are following Jesus in the way of Christ, should we not be happy to be able to contribute to the work of Christ in the world? Happy to bring blessing to others? Happy to be able to encourage other believers elsewhere who are in need? And all of that, says Paul, increases their love. It deepens their sense that God is with them, that God is for their praise. And so, verse 12, there is this thankfulness to God, overflowing in many expressions of thanks because the service that we give is not only supplying the needs of people, but results in God being thanked and praised. Now, no doubt... Some of the impact of giving is harder to notice in this day and age than it was in Paul's time. In Paul's time, there was no state benefit system. So the help was much more direct and immediate. And when churches helped one another out, it was a specific direct action that was accompanied by someone taking the gift and, and maybe a letter with it. That's what Paul had been talking about in chapter 8 and the, um, into chapter 9, making arrangements for Titus to receive the collection and take it. There's a personal link. Now, that's much easier to see the impact then, but it's far removed from the way that we live today, particularly as we head towards a less cash, if not quite a cashless society. Giving is often more indirect, done via the bank. It is more indirect when it goes into a central fund and then redistributed. 
However, that shouldn't blind us to what's happening. Giving is not any more direct at the giver's end, no matter what method of payment is used, whether I pay by cash or a card or a standing order, the impact on myself is ultimately the same. I should make sure that I notice. And even when giving is more done more indirectly, such as contributions that congregations make into the, the church's ministry and mission fund and, and then given to poorer congregations, or more rural congregations and the like. Even when the giving is done centrally to an organization like Christian Aid or Tear Fund and then taken to those in particular need, even when that's happening, we can find out a lot more about what happens when we give. And always, as Paul is urging here, we should look for and see the bigger picture. What it comes down to is that it's not all about us, but about the Lord and his kingdom. It's not about us as individuals, nor the church as an organization. Rather, it's about realizing that we are participants in a great adventure, a gospel drama that is moving forward and the best is yet to come, a best that can never fade or disappear in God's kingdom. That was Jesus' point when he said, don't lay up treasures on earth, lay up treasures in heaven. He says, it doesn't rust, the moth doesn't get in and eat it away, it will never be destroyed. It's about whether or not we realize then that everything comes from the generosity of God and everything should return to him in thanksgiving. Grace, generosity, gratitude. Not duty. Not what can we get away with. Unbounded grace, generosity, and gratitude. And realizing that that is our God, that is a gospel. And when we realize that, surely then we will respond eagerly, thoughtfully, sacrificially, and joyfully. So you see, financial giving, or the lack of giving, is a deeply spiritual issue. It shows how much God matters. It shows how much the gospel matters to us. We do what we can, give what and how we can, as our response to our, his salvation. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And then remembering that, to live that, so that, verse 15 of chapter 9, we live out thankfulness to God for his indescribable gift. Let us pray.